But first, let's head to Washington and the reason why the US president isn't coming, the ongoing dispute over raising what's called the debt limit. The Biden White House is at loggerheads with the new Republican-controlled House of Representatives and the stakes could scarcely be higher. Unless it borrows more money, America won't be able to meet its financial obligations. It won't be able to pay its bills. Crunch day is June the 1st. And if it does default on its debts, there'd be financial chaos around the world. Well, with us to give us his insights is the BBC's Washington correspondent, Anthony Zerka, an old colleague of mine. Some of you may know him as the Zerk from the popular podcast, Americas. Anthony, it's great to have you on the show. Nick, it's great to talk with you. It's the cocktail hour there in Washington. It's 5.30 on a, on a Friday evening. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Speaker, the Republican House Speaker, of course, uh, he predicted earlier this week that there'd be a deal by now. Um, but we're hearing the talks are on pause. That's, that's the word now. Uh, if you'd asked me how the talks were going yesterday morning, uh, I would have said it's looking good. Uh, both Joe Biden and the Democrats and the Republicans were sounding optimistic that they might have a deal by this weekend. And Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, had emphasized that this weekend was pretty much when they had to have a deal because the closer you get to that June 1st deadline, uh, the, the harder it will be to get Congress to approve something in time. Uh, but then word was that this morning as they were walking Walking out of talks, uh, the negotiator for the Republicans uh, said that the talks have been put on pause, uh, that uh, they were at loggerheads on spending cuts in particular, or at least on caps on spending in particular. Uh, and the White House confirmed this, that uh, that the, the, speaks, uh, this, the talks have hit an impasse. And whether this is a negotiating tactic, a ploy, or a real hard, uh, difficult impasse they're hitting, that's, uh, that's kind of subject to speculation at this point. Now, a question that's really germane here in Australia right now is how heavily involved is is the president himself in these negotiations? Does he really have to be in Washington? Did he really have to cancel his visit (laughs) to Sydney and Canberra? You know, uh, I think he is involved in these talks because uh, you have to remember, before he was president or even vice president, he was a senator for decades and decades. He thinks he knows how Congress works. He likes to get involved in kind of nitty gritty congressional negotiations. So uh, I, I think he wants to be involved. But I think part of the reason why he's coming back early isn't so he can get there and carry this over the finish line. I think it's because uh, he's got an eye towards the American public. And if he's off having foreign meetings while we get closer and closer to this this uh, horrible deadline, this crisis point, that could cost him politically and it could look like he's not taking this seriously. So, well, I'm sure he wants to be involved. He wouldn't have to be involved. It's the political considerations that are, I think, of the highest priority for him right now. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, we should actually explain what the debt limit is, isn't it? It's this law that limits the total amount of money the government can borrow to pay its bills. Uh, you know, they have to pay the salaries of government employees, the military Medicare, Social Security. Um, And now it's become part of this kind of crazy melodrama of Washington politics. Right. The the debt limit, the law goes back uh, over 100 years, but up until about 12 years ago, it was just kind of a pro forma thing because the spending has already been approved. The budgets were set, the appropriations were made, the money was committed, the debt limit essentially was making sure that you had enough uh, of a limit on your credit card to borrow the money to to pay for all of the stuff that you already you know brought home. Uh, and what happened in the past twelve years, twenty eleven, was when when the first debt limit kind of crisis hit. Is that 
conservatives have been using this and the specter of a default on the national debt to force Democrats and Democratic presidents in particular to come to the negotiating table and agree to budget cuts and uh, and uh, conservative priorities uh, un under the point of the threat of, of default. It's the one thing that gives them leverage when they don't control all of government. And that has led to these these constant crises, although I will point out that when Donald Trump was president and Republicans were controlling Congress, at least one chamber of Congress, they raised the debt limit without a whole lot of drama. So it's only when Democrats are in the White House and Republicans have part of Congress that this becomes a kind of a high stakes showdown. The party out of power tends to become deficit hawks all of a sudden. <laughs> the, the party in power loves, loves spending money. Um, I mean, what you were saying there is essentially that this has been weaponized. Um, this has become a political device. And this is something that is fairly new. I mean, the raising the debt limit really used to be pretty routine. I think from the 1960s to 2010, it had been raised 74 times. Um, now it's become weaponized. Yeah, and the reason is because uh, it, it is something that forces the issue. Uh, and, and part of it is that the, the people who negotiate, the people who can sit down and, and uh, come up with these backroom deals and give a little and get a little, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not the ones who are influencing politics anymore. And, you know, when I go to talk to, to politicians here in Washington and really across the country, one of the things they say is that the pressure on them, particularly the moderates, from uh, the the extremes within their party, the the, the just the, the the spotlight that's on them, in part because of the internet and uh, and twenty four hour cable news uh, and people just following national politics all the time, that that pressure is so much greater that there isn't room to negotiate, isn't room to make any kind of concessions, because as soon as you do that, everyone back home knows about it. And uh, the people who are against it turn out and are the loudest yellers and get the most influence in the primaries where these people have to win their party's nomination to go on to compete in a general election. And I guess this tells us quite a lot about how Washington has changed over the years, how it's become far more polarised. I mean, in the old days, Anthony, as you and I both know, uh, there were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans who would often come together and make these deals. That was the overlap in American politics which allowed for compromise. Those people aren't around anymore, right? They're not. No, they're not. And, and, and part of it, I think, is, is as I said, it, it's the amount of attention being paid to national politics, uh, in part because of the Internet and because of uh, places like Fox News and MSNBC and all these cable networks that give it constant nonstop coverage. But it, it's a lot harder to to just come to Washington and make deals anymore. Uh, everyone has uh, pressure to, to answer and, and hold the line. And, and any kind of concession is viewed as weakness. And that is a definite change uh, in American politics. Whereas if you go back to the 1980s, even with Ronald Reagan uh, as president, Tip O'Neill, the, the longtime Speaker of the House, the Democrats uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, they would be able to sit down with the cameras off and, and negotiate and come up with a deal that they could get everyone else to sign off on uh, eventually. And, and they could do it because 
there wasn't that kind of white hot attention, that pressure. Uh, Washington has definitely changed. And, you know, the, the debt limit, you're playing with a loaded gun and you don't even know when we're going to hit the debt limit. The June 1st deadline is an estimate, uh, but it could be after that even. And, and so you're playing a game of chicken where both cars are racing at each other and you don't even know when the cars are going to hit. So how can you know when you're supposed to swerve? It's a it's a very challenging uh, thing to play with because you never know exactly when you're going to, over, going to go over the cliff, but the, the consequences for doing it are so high. It is a loaded gun. I mean, some people would say the weaponry that you could evoke is even bigger than that because the effects of a default would be would be catastrophic. I mean, not just in America, but but around the world. I mean, what would, what would that sort of, almost a kind of doomsday scenario look like? Uh, yeah, we, we, we don't actually know because it's never happened. You know, we don't know what nuclear war looks like because it you know, never happened. We don't know what a United States uh, defaulting on, on the debt would look like because we've never gotten, uh, gotten over the, the cliff. We came close, actually, in 2011, and uh, the United States' credit rating got downgraded just with the threat that this could happen, the prospect that we were getting close to this happening. Uh, but uh, you, you explained some of what might happen, payments to Social Security which is the, the retirement payments to elderly in the United States, that would be delayed. Payments to the military would be delayed. Payments to federal workers all across the country uh, would come to a halt. And then perhaps most importantly, payments on the federal debt would be suspended. The, the United States couldn't pay off the, the treasury bills that are coming due. Uh, and when uh, the, the trust that people have in treasury bills goes down, uh, that will send shockwaves, not just through the American economy. There's talks about you know, trillions of dollars in lost revenue and, and unemployment spiking uh, because interest rates shoot up. But that has global consequences because, you know, as you know, the United States economy is, is the, uh, the, the linchpin to the global economy. And politically speaking, if there isn't a deal, and God forbid, um, who'd get the blame? You know, that's uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, the incumbents would get the blame, and I think Joe Biden is afraid that he would get the the brunt of the blame, even if not directly from these talks. If the economy goes bad, the president gets blamed no matter what the reason is. So in the end, he would be the one who would you know face the consequences of this. Uh, I think if you look at polls, uh, it, it's. A, pretty sharply divided on partisan lines, but people tend to blame Congress more than they do president in these kind of showdowns, whether they're uh, debt limit showdowns or budget showdowns that could lead to government shutdowns, which you've had you know, plenty of in, in recent years. Uh, but I don't, you know, there, there will be plenty of blame to go around. And anyone who's currently in office, I think they are going to have to be worried that voters will, will uh, have their wrath focused on them. Yeah, I think that's a crucial point to make, isn't it? This isn't a government shutdown. We've seen many of those. This is absolutely yeah. far more serious and has far bigger global ramifications. Obviously, there's a political context to this. We're, we're mm -hmm. going to have a presidential election uh, next year. You're just back from Florida, I think. You've been taking a look at <laughs> Governor Ron DeSantis, and we're expecting him to declare next week. Uh, that's that's the word we're hearing. Uh, he, he pretty much has to declare or at least file his paperwork with the Federal Election Commission, which oversees federal elections uh, here in the U.S. Uh, sometime in the next week and a half or so, because he moved his campaign headquarters, spent uh, more than the the uh, maximum limit in in costs for that. And then once you do that, you have to say if you're running for president or not. So the clock's ticking on him. And everyone now is expecting the reports are he will announce his presidential campaign possibly on, on Wednesday. Uh, but he is considered 
he's been considered possibly Donald Trump's biggest rival for the Republican nomination. Uh, even in the middle of last year, he might have been considered the front runner above and beyond Donald Trump to get the nomination because he's a popular governor. He won a big reelection in Florida just last year. He's accomplished a lot of conservative uh, priorities in the state legislature. He's uh, been very visible on the conservative talk shows and within conservative media. Uh, he's His star has dwindled a little bit lately, but that's more, I think, a reflection of Republicans, conservatives rallying around Donald Trump. And uh, he's viewed as maybe a uh, a more uh, restrained version of Trumpism, a more competent governing version of Trumpism. But when you're going up against the real deal, it's a lot harder to kind of sell yourself <laughs> as a watered-down version of the, of the original. Well, that's it, isn't it? Sometimes they call him Trump with a brain, but he's not got the big personality, even if he's got the big intellect. And I think that's a real problem because American politics has become so performative and, and yeah. it's just a gift for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And, and I've you know, I've seen Ron DeSantis in person, and he does lack that kind of oversized personality that Donald Trump has. He doesn't have the showman's flair. You know, some of the things he does seems almost kind of derivative of Donald Trump's, uh, you know, touch with uh, with the performance and the style of politics. So uh, he's I, I certainly can't rule him out. And he's going to have a lot of money, and he's going to run a serious campaign. Uh, and things can change in the eight months or so before the first primary votes. But he now has an uphill battle, uh, and uh, and a lot of people now are, are doubting whether he can do it. And Donald Trump, I will say, Donald Trump definitely thinks he's his most formidable opponent. Donald Trump has been focusing all of his fire. If you look at his posts on social media and the statements out of his presidential campaign, all of that on knocking Ron DeSantis down some pegs, criticizing his his record in Florida, criticizing cuts he's proposed to the Social Security and retirement benefits, saying he hasn't been good for the Florida economy. Uh, it is going to be a one-on-one a, a -on -one battle between the two of them, I think, before too long. Yeah, I think the road to the White House could get bloody uh, very soon. Um, Anthony, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, the BBC's Washington correspondent, Anthony Zerker, thank you. My pleasure. Well, up next, from gridlock in Washington and the road to the White House to the problem of actually getting electric trucks on the roads and highways of Australia. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.